Hello, I'm Derek Corker. I'm the pastor of the Oxford Bible Church. And we're continuing in our series on the ABCs of faith. Now we're moving into the final stage of this series. We're going to talk about living by faith, what it means. We've seen faith is more than just believing something about God, but it's also about trusting, relying, depending on God and his promises, rather than on ourselves and our works. The Bible says we're saved by grace through faith, faith alone and not of works, so that we've got no grounds for boasting. And by the very nature of faith, therefore, works must be excluded from any definition of faith because if our works are involved at all, we cannot be trusting in Christ alone. So faith is total reliance on God and confidence in God to fulfill his word. But although we are saved by faith alone, a saving faith must not remain alone. It cannot remain alone because if we truly believe, it will show itself in actions in our life in a changed life. We will express our faith through our works. Our faith will be revealed in our life. Otherwise, it, it couldn't have been real faith in the first place. And so those who are justified before God by faith must also live by faith. Uh, and that's a famous uh, verse, the just shall live by faith. It's, let's go to Romans 1.16 to see that. I'm not ashamed, he says, of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then also the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. There are two steps of faith here, from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith, or the just by faith shall live. Which is it? Both. Those are the two steps of faith. Well, first of all, you must be justified by faith before God, but, and then we must live by faith. We are made right with God by faith, then we are to live it out by faith. We are to prove our justification by living by faith. It says, just as it is written. Where is it written? It's actually in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. It says, for the vision is yet for the appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. This is the promise of God for your life. God has made the promise, and it will come to pass. But in the meantime, you have to live by faith, acting as if that promise is true. Verse 4, Behold the proud, the one who trusts in himself. His soul is not upright in him. He is not right with God. But the just the righteous by faith, shall live by his faith. That's what it says. That's what we're talking about now. We've received the promise, but now how are we to live by faith? What does the life of faith look like? Well, if we go, we're going to go to Hebrews 11, but we're going to just start that in Hebrews chapter, chapter 10, verse 37, where this is again quoted. It says, the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. And then he quotes, for yet a little while, and it, he who is coming shall come, and it will not tarry. God's promise, and Jesus is coming soon to fulfill his word. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. What gives God pleasure? 
It's the one who continues to live by faith, who shows his faith by a life of faith and doesn't pull back into unbelief, who doesn't quit believing. The one who lives by faith, even before the promise is manifested, you see, even though we don't see it yet. What does it mean to live by faith? What's that kind of faith that pleases God? What kind of faith would cause God to write a good report on you? Well, these questions are answered in Hebrews chapter 11, which is full of illustrations from the lives of the Old Testament heroes of faith. And, and it says that they all obtained a good testimony from God of because of their faith that was revealed in their actions. These pioneers teach us the basic principles of faith, uh, of the life of faith. And we sh from them, we will find what gives God pleasure and what causes God to give us a good report. So we're going to take these one by one. We're going to deal with the first of them today. But let's now go into Hebrews chapter 11. First of all, he defines faith. What is it, faith? It says, now faith is the substance or the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, the conviction of things not seen. You see, in other words, faith relates us to invisible realities whose full manifestation is yet in the future, but for which we have God's promise for. It's trusting in the invisible God, that he's faithful to his word. It helps us to know that ultimate realities are spiritual. Faith is our sixth sense that connects us to God, who is beyond the range of our senses. Faith sees the invisible. Faith believes the impossible. Living by faith is living by an invisible source, leaning on an invisible power, you see. And faith can only come by hearing the word of God. It's trusting God, acting and then acting as if the word is true. Faith is essentially of the heart, but it needs to be expressed in our life or it will be unproductive. And the faith is what pleases God. Hebrews 11.2 says, For by faith the elders, the heroes of faith, obtained a good report. You see, Faith pleases God, and it proves its genuineness by the good works. But what pleases God is not so much the good works we do, but the faith that is behind those works and expressed through those works. It's the confidence that we show in God and his word that is revealed in our actions. That's what really pleases him. And so the first way that faith changes our life is that it changes our whole worldview of the universe. Hebrews 11.3 says, by faith we understand that the worlds or the ages are framed, prepared by the word of God. The, the, the things which are seen were not made out of things which are visible. You see, ultimately you have one of two philosophies of life. Either materialism, which says that all we can see is reality, there's nothing else, and therefore everything is evolving by random natural processes. There's no higher spiritual reality, and, and that's one way you can approach life. The other way, of course, is through faith. We see that this visible universe is not the ultimate reality, but was created by God, and the invisible God, and therefore it's subject to him. He's sovereign over it all. 
He governs it by his word. We are not an accident, but we are the result of design and creation, not evolution. Praise God. And God is sovereign over the ages. God is sovereign over our life. He's working his plan out in history, and he's working his plan out even through our circumstances in our life. And though we often see the hand of man, faith also sees God's hand behind it all, working out everything together for our good. By faith, we know we're not the center of the universe. God is, and he's working out his plan through the ages. And now, that's the start in a life of faith. But the life of faith is then illustrated by the heroes of faith from verse 4 onwards. And this hall of fame is only a partial listing because God wants to add your name to the list. And when he'd finished this whole chapter on the heroes of faith, he finishes in Hebrews 12. I want to jump ahead to this conclusion first. He says, therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who considered hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And what he's saying here is, that there is a great cloud of witnesses. You are now in the Olympic Stadium. You are running your race of faith. And those who've gone before you are now watching from the grandstands of heaven, and they are cheering you on, and they've run their race. And they have shown us what it means to live by faith. And now we are, the baton has been passed to us, and we are to run our race of faith, inspired by their examples from before, putting their examples into practice, and most of all, Jesus has run the greatest race of all, and he's our greatest inspiration. And then we are to be encouraged to run our race and not to quit. And so we're going to look at those runners one by one. The first one is Abel. And the, f the life of faith begins by uh, coming into God's presence. We see that by faith, in verse 3, we saw that we understand that God is creator, that he's sovereign. And that's the first step. But that's not yet a saving faith. You see, the, the step of faith that's necessary next is the faith that takes you into the presence of God, to know God personally. You see, you can know God's creator but still be far away from him because of sin. An unsaved person can praise God from a distance but to truly worship God, you have to come into his immediate presence and surrender all to him. You see, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And for this to be possible, a man must first be made right with God. His spirit must be made alive. Otherwise, he cannot come into the presence of God. He has to come in spirit and in truth. And we're going to share about what the key truth is that you need to come into the presence of God. And so the first step in the life of faith is to be able to come into God's presence and to worship God. And that's the first thing that's revealed in these, in these patriarchs. 
The truth, by the way, is the truth of faith in the blood of Jesus. That's how you worship God, in spirit and in truth, that you come into his presence through the blood of Jesus. We're going to see that through the story of Abel. This is the faith exemplified by Abel, the first hero of faith. Abel teaches us that true faith in God, the faith that makes you acceptable to God, righteous before God, bringing you into his presence, must be a faith that is based in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11.4 By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. You see, now, what did Abel do by faith? He offered up a sacrifice that was accepted by God. To do it by faith, by the way, he had to be obeying God's instructions. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. Abel would have followed the instructions that God had given through Adam. He would have laid his hands on that sin offering, that lamb, probably. And his sins were then transferred to that animal. And then that animal was offered up on the altar and killed in his place. Twice it says in this verse that God witnessed his acceptance of this sacrifice. How did he do that? Well, consistently in the Bible, it's by, because God would have sent fire down on that animal to consume it. And that's a picture of God's wrath coming down and falling on this innocent substitute instead of on Abel. Abel deserved it because he'd sinned. But the wrath of God now came on that innocent substitute. And this is a picture of the sacrifice of Christ. He took our sins and he took the punishment that we deserved. And God witnessed that. Jesus sacrificed by raising him from the dead. And through this sacrifice, you see, Abel was actually putting his trust in the blood of Christ for his forgiveness. And as a result, God accepted him. God declared him righteous through his faith. And that's the first step in the life of faith, is to put your trust in the sacrifice of Christ. You cannot stand before God on your own merits. The wrath of God will just come upon you. But you must come into the presence of God to worship God only through faith in the blood of Jesus. Then you can worship in spirit and in truth. To understand the background to this, you have to go back to the first three chapters of Genesis. You see, in Genesis 1 and 2, God created man in perfection to have fellowship. They walked and talked in the garden. Man had access to the presence of God. But then in Genesis 3, sin entered the world. The fall of man happened. And man died spiritually. And it says that they knew that they were naked. They suddenly, the glory of God left their life and they knew they couldn't stand before God now. They knew they needed a covering. They were excluded from the presence of God now and fear took over. They knew there was a sense of judgment. And then man, then man came up with a solution. They made themselves clothes of fig leaves to cover themselves. And that's what man tries to do. He tries to cover himself with the fig leaves of his own good works. But that, that is futile, because as soon as God started walking in the garden, 
they had to hide themselves from his presence because they were afraid. Those fig leaves couldn't cover them in the presence of the Almighty God. And so man's religion, man's good works are useless in the presence of God. But God still loved man, even fallen man, and he reached out to him. And he provided a covering for Adam and Eve. It says that Adam and his wife, for them, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. This is the first shedding of blood in the Bible. The animal was killed and they were clothed as it were, in those garments. They were clothed in the blood of that innocent substitute. And God was telling Adam that that the only effective covering for their sin would be through the death, the blood of an innocent substitute. And and so, at this point, God covered them in in the blood of another. But of course, the blood of a mere animal could never save. This was only symbolic of the blood of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so at the same time, to make this clear, he prophesied the coming of a great saviour, a great deliverer, the Messiah. Genesis 3.15, God says to Satan, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. The seed of the woman, the virgin-born Messiah will come. He will crush your head, Satan, and you will bruise his heel. And here's a picture of the coming Messiah. He will destroy the power of sin and Satan. But at the same time as he crushes the serpent's head, he gets bitten in the heel. And so the Messiah would receive the poison of sin into himself. He would suffer death, but through his death and resurrection, he would crush the serpent under his feet. And so right at the beginning, God declared the gospel to Adam and Eve that the Messiah was coming to be sacrificed but would gain their salvation and their victory. And Abel and and Adam believed that. And he passed on to his children this truth that was recorded in Genesis. And he taught them the need of sacrifices, making animal sacrifices, not as a virtue for themselves, but because they were prophetic of the coming Messiah. They were to offer up sacrifices in faith, Through that sacrifice, they were to put their trust in the coming Messiah. Otherwise, they would be lost. Abel accepted this teaching of faith, but Cain rejected it and instead had a works religion. You see, God taught Adam that atonement, covering for sins, only comes through the death of the Messiah. And that was demonstrated by that animal sacrifice. The only way back into God's presence They were excluded from the garden, but the only way back into God's presence was the shedding of innocent blood that pointed to the blood of Christ. And the issue is this. Man has sinned. We can either pay the penalty ourselves of death or we can let someone else pay the price. But who would be so nice? Only Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He's paid the price with his blood. And if you will accept what he's done, you can come straight into the presence of God by putting your faith in the blood. But if you put your faith in your good works, you will fail. Those are the two alternatives. You can only come into God's presence through the blood. And this is illustrated in the story of Cain and Abel. Let's read that right now in Genesis 4 from verse 2. It says, Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, 
but Cain was the tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Now that might sound all right, but he was disobeying God. He said, you've got to bring an animal sacrifice. He was bringing the fruit of his own efforts from the cursed ground, and that was not acceptable. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. He brought a sacrificial lamb. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering by sending fire from heaven. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. God did not accept Cain's offering because it was done in his own way, in pride. And that Cain was very angry in his pride and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, in other words, if you would come to me through a blood sacrifice rather than your works, will you not be accepted? Will I not accept you as righteous? And if you do not do well, if you carry on in this way, I'll do it my way, then sin lies at the door. He says that you're the sin nature is waiting to take control of you. Its desire is for you to dominate you. But you should rule over it. And God's warning Cain, if he carries on in this way of pride, trusting in his own good works, you know, just do what feels right to you. You know, just vent your anger, just indulge whatever you're feeling to do. Then, uh, he says, your sin nature will just take control of you. But rather, you need to take control of it through the word of God. And then it says in verse 8 that Cain talked with Abel, his brother. Abel started complaining about God. Sorry, Cain complained to Abel about God. But Abel witnessed to him. But that got him so mad that it says that it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Abel would have said, you've got to trust in the blood sacrifice of the Messiah. But Cain was angry and killed him. He rejected God's word. In his heart he said, God, you want blood, do you? I'll give you blood. I'll give you Abel's blood. And Abel gives us the first lesson for a life of faith. The only way you're going to get into the presence of God, to worship God and receive from God, is through the blood of the Messiah. We can, it's the only way to be made right with God, to have access to God, to worship God. The blood atonement of Christ. Any other religion that isn't based on that is false and is the way of Cain. Jesus paid the price for you and that's the only way in. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. Abel's a picture of the believer, you see, who trusts in the blood sacrifice of Christ. Cain is a picture of the unbeliever who rejects salvation through blood and replaces it by a man-made religion of works. And down the ages, Cain has been killing Abel. Unbelievers persecuting and killing true believers. Because of they've taken that approach, they become dominated by their sin nature. And the hatred, especially towards believers, will fill their hearts. But God has revealed from the beginning that salvation is only through blood. That's the only, that's the first lesson of faith you have to learn before. You can't do anything by faith until you've learned how to enter God's presence and to be made right with God. And that's how you worship God, in spirit, with a reborn spirit, and in truth, 
the truth of the blood of Jesus. That is your access into the presence of God. Hallelujah. And so only Jesus can pay the price for your sins and bring you into the presence of God. If you reject that grace of God through the blood, there is no hope and you cannot help but come under the power of sin. And, and that will increasingly be evident in your life that the sin nature takes over your personality and you will end up under the judgment of God. Are you like Cain or are you like Abel? You must accept the blood of Jesus for your forgiveness, for your standing before God. You've got to accept the blood for yourself. You know, it's interesting in Genesis 4, it says, the Lord said to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me for judgment from the ground. So now you're cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your blood, brother's blood from your hand. The blood, you see, of every martyr, every person who's murdered, every abortion victim calls out for judgment like the blood of Abel. But thank God the blood of Jesus speaks mercy because he's taken the judgment that we deserve on himself. And that's why Hebrews says, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than Abel. Hallelujah. If you accept the powerful blood of Jesus for you, then the mercy and the forgiveness of that blood will overcome all judgment that is due to fall on you. You've got to come through the blood of Jesus. You've got to plead the blood for yourself or you have no hope before God. Everything else is like fig leaves that will not stand the test. So Abel gives us our first lesson in the life of faith. Our faith must be based in the blood atonement of Jesus Christ because of sin, you see. Our life and blessing in God cannot be based on our own righteousness. Only by trusting in God's grace that is freely available through the blood of Christ. He paid the price in full for our sin. He purchased our salvation. Thank God for the blood. When you come into God's presence to worship him, come with the truth of the blood of Jesus and you will be able to worship God spirit to spirit.